Well, take your Bibles this morning, open them to the Gospel of Luke. Today we're in Luke chapter 22. We started last week looking at the final day of Jesus as we approach Easter. And so last week we looked at the Last Supper. Today we come to Luke 22, verses 39 to 53, where we look at Jesus on the Mount of Olives, also known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 53. Would you please stand in honor of God's word as it is read? Before I read, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Amen. You may be seated. What difference does prayer make? Now, normally when we talk about prayer, or if a pastor preaches on prayer, and we talk about the difference that prayer makes, the emphasis we tend to make is to focus in on God's power in response to prayer. And if you've heard many sermons in your life, you've probably heard a sermon on prayer and illustrations about how God has miraculously answered prayer. I can think of a camp meeting preacher once who he told this story how he was on an airplane flight years ago. And the captain came over the speakers on the flight and said, we have lost power to the engine. He said, there's a mechanical problem on the other side of the other engine. He said, unless something miraculous happens, he said, we are not going to be able to land this plane. The camp speaker, as they, uh, they released the mast to come down to be ready for the passengers to take it, as the stewardess said to buckle up, he, said, said, he stood up and he said, everyone, he said, I'm going to pray. But what he discovered, obviously he lived through it, was that there was a person that he knew, a friend of his in in the country of India, who the Lord said, you need to be praying for your friend Charlie right now. There was a person who lived in Ohio 
that was a close friend. And the Lord impressed, you know what, Charlie needs prayers right now. All across America, different people had an impression that God wants you to pray for Charlie right now. And Charlie said it was a miracle of God that the engine came back on, started to work, and the plane landed. And then when the pilot got off, he greeted the crew. He said, I don't know what happened. He said, the truth is, this plane had a mechanical failure. It should have crashed. He, he raised his hand. He said, I prayed. And he said, I, the captain said, I believe that. And he discovered that there was over two dozen people that God had moved to prayer while he was in flight on that plane to save him. Usually we like to hear stories, stories of the amazing of what God does in response to prayer. But we discover something else in this passage. There's no great miracle as you walk away from it. Instead, you discover that prayer is the foundation for the obedient Christian life. Prayer lays the foundation for Christian obedience. It is foundational for our discipleship. And today, God wants us to see how prayer lays a foundation for obedience. To do that, we're going to go in an odd fashion. In fact, that's one of the reasons I didn't put notes on the screen. We're going to look at some hypotheticals. I wonder what would have happened. And I know when you deal with hypotheticals, there's no way to know. There's no way to answer that, that question. What would have happened if, because it didn't happen. It's kind of like asking how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. We don't know because a woodchuck can't chuck wood. But a hypothetical, and then we're going to look at the realities. And the reason we're going to look at some hypotheticals is sometimes that helps to put it in stark contrast to the reality of what happened. So let me ask you a hypothetical question this morning. If the disciples had prayed like Jesus said, would they have stuck by Jesus once he was arrested? Think about that. We know that the disciples, Luke doesn't tend to highlight it in his gospel, but we know that the disciples, once Jesus is arrested, they flee. In fact, Matthew in his gospel in chapter 26, 26 verse 31 says, Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. If you go verses later down to verse 56 of that same chapter, it says, then all the disciples deserted him. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 50, it says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. We know the disciples fled. My question, it's a hypothetical one, I realize that. My question is this. If the disciples had prayed, would they have stuck by Jesus? Do you notice that in this passage? When you read this passage, do you realize that this first part, in my Bible, there's a, they've, got, they've put title heads over verses 39 to 46. Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives. Then the next part we read, verses 47 following, they called Jesus arrested. But do you realize that in those verses from 39 to 46, where Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives, that there's bookends on that little passage. The same phrase repeated at the beginning and repeated again at the end. Jesus, it says, went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then, that's the front bookend, on the back side of this passage, when he's about to be arrested and the crowd is coming to arrest him, in verse 46, he says, why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So at the beginning of going to the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells the disciples, pray. 
so you don't fall into temptation. At the end, he says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And it just made me wonder, if the disciples had prayed, would they have stuck by Jesus? Of course, it matters, I suppose, what Jesus meant by pray that you will not fall into temptation. What does he mean by temptation? It's interesting, scholars have taken different interpretations of that little phrase, temptation there. One scholar says this, he says, the temptation that they could fall into is that they themselves might be arrested along with Jesus, and they might suffer the same fate as Jesus. And Jesus is telling them, you need to pray that God will protect your life. Because it was very common that if somebody was arrested for being an insurrectionist back in that day, that their closest followers, those who would be, um, since the next tier of leadership, would be arrested along with them. And that makes sense. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, John highlights what Jesus says when he's arrested. He says to the crowd that's arresting him in John's record, who is it you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he and he says, I told you I am he. If you're looking for me, Jesus said, then let these men go. So that makes sense, but Luke doesn't seem to highlight that part in his gospel. In fact, Luke has already recorded back in verse 32 where Jesus says, I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus already seems to have a sense that the disciples, will, they will not be arrested. They will not lose their lives. He knows that they will live. Some then view the, the temptation, they say, well, if it's not them losing their life, they view the temptation as the struggle with sleep. Some say Jesus really needed his friends to be there, his disciples to be there with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He needed them to pray and to travail in prayer with him. And he says, you need to pray. And they're saying the temptation is that they will fall asleep. Well, maybe, but that doesn't seem like that great of a temptation. Um, it, Luke doesn't seem to highlight that. In fact, Luke, of all the Gospels, gives them a little bit of a break. He says they were tired and sleepy because of their sorrow. It seems to me that the word temptation, when Jesus says, pray that you will not fall into temptation, it is indeed the temptation to deny and to run from Jesus, their master. He knows they won't be arrested. Sure, they fall asleep. But will they be faithful in following their master, even when he is arrested and taken to the cross of Calvary? And so he says, pray. And I wonder, if the disciples had prayed, would they have stuck with Jesus? We don't know, do we? We don't know. It's a hypothetical. So let me ask you one other hypothetical question. If Jesus had not prayed, would he have gone to the cross? If Jesus had not prayed, would he have gone to the cross? Because do you see the structure of this passage? It starts off, they come into the Mount of Olives. Remember, at the beginning is a bookend. Jesus tells the disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. We, are, we know that at the end of the passage, it's going to say, he's going to tell the disciples again, pray that you do not fall into temptation. Do you see what happens in the middle, though? The disciples are told to pray at the beginning. They're told to pray at the end. But in the middle... Jesus prays. He is the one who prays. And when he prays, it makes me wonder, if he had not prayed, would he have gone to the cross? It's interesting, some theologians surmise, we don't know this for sure, there's 
One of the things we, we can't tell because Scripture doesn't make it entirely clear. But some people wonder if the Garden of Gethsemane was really the final time when Jesus Christ was tempted to turn His back on the will of the Father. Because if you go back in Luke's Gospel, all the way back to chapter 4, in chapter 4, Jesus, this is before His ministry begins, He's led into the wilderness where for 40 days He's tempted by the devil. And it's interesting, when that, those three temptations pass, it says this about the devil in verse, chapter 4, verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. He left him until an opportune time. Some have thought that maybe that opportune time is here on the Mount of Olives, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that the devil comes to tempt Jesus, that right now, if he would but turn his back on the plan of the Father, he could save his own life. In fact, it's interesting that you'll notice in this passage, if we, let's start reading at verse 40. It says, on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthened him, and being in anguish. The word for anguish, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The word for anguish means to struggle or to strive. Isn't it interesting that Jesus actually prays, not my will, but yours be done, Father. An angel strengthens him, and then he begins to struggle or to strive. And some have thought, is he at this point struggling in prayer with the Father against the temptation of the devil? We don't know. It's interesting that when the word temptation shows up in a passage, often the devil is close behind. Remember, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, tempted by whom? The devil. Even when Jesus tells a parable about the soils, you know, the different seed that lands on different soils. One soil landed on rocky ground, and it says that that was the soil in which the devil came and stole the gospel, the good news from their hearts. The next one, though, it says is they were tempted and tested by the struggles of life, and the gospel was choked out in that story. So oftentimes the devil, when, the word, when temptation, that word is used in Luke's gospel, the devil is nearby. So Jesus is praying. If he had not prayed, would he have gone to the cross? You think about that? I mean, if you knew that you were going to die, that you were going to be arrested, that you were going to put on trial, that you're going to be wrongly convicted, that then you're going to be whipped with 39 lashes with a whip, you're going to have a crown of thorns pushed on your head. If you knew that eventually you were going to carry the cross beam, the horizontal beam of the cross to the place where they're going to crucify you, lay you down, take spikes, drive them through probably what was the wrist, and then through their feet, and then you're going to hang there. And you're not going to die from bleeding. You're not going to die from exposure to the elements. You're going to die, in most cases, you would die from asphyxiation. Because as your feet are nailed to the cross and your arms are outstretched, you can no longer get the leverage you need to get air into your lungs. And so you eventually suffocate to death on the cross. If you knew that was going to happen, wouldn't your natural option to be to think, you know what, let's come up with plan B. Plan B doesn't sound too bad, does it? Plan A sounds horrible. 
And you think, if Jesus didn't pray, do you think maybe that night he would just ran? Just said, you know what? I'm out of here. Let's get out of here, guys. Let's go back to Galilee. If we run now and we don't show our faces again, eventually they will leave us alone. I don't know. Do you think if Jesus didn't pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe he would have fought. He would have said, you know what? This is nuts. Why should I lay down my life and die? Maybe we should go find more swords. Let's get the crowds together. Let's go back to Galilee. I'll preach a few times, heal a few people, get a few thousand people to show up again, and then let's go to Jerusalem with thousands. And we will win the day. Or maybe Jesus would just crush under the pressure of it and the strain of it and just simply go mad. That's all hypothetical, isn't it? Because we know in the garden he prayed. So those are the hypotheticals. If the disciples had prayed, would they not have run? If Jesus had not prayed, would he have stayed and gone to the cross? So let's compare that with the actuals and see it in contrast The disciples, we know that they did not pray. They landed up falling asleep. And let's just pause. Do you ever just feel like, you know what? You can relate to the disciples who fell asleep when they're praying. I don't know about you. I I am one of the world's best nappers there are. I can sleep any time of day. Now, I like to go to bed and sleep. I'm not great at sleeping in a chair, but I can make it happen if need be. And I have often found myself feeling guilty for these disciples and with them when they fall asleep. In fact, I have a friend I went to college with over at Bethel, and he loves to tell the story of how my freshman year, sitting in an Old Testament class, I was sitting at the table, I I think it was an afternoon class, but I'm not sure about that, sitting at the table, have you ever sat there, and oops, sorry, that was my microphone, and you're sitting there, and you got your hand on your elbow, and you're just trying to hold your eyes open, you need toothpicks underneath them, and you're sitting there just staring and paying attention. And then the next thing, I don't remember this, but he clearly does and likes to remind me of it every time we get together. He said, there you sat, your hand on your head, and the next thing you know, you fell totally asleep and, and you hit your head on the table and the entire class turned and you bounced back up wide-eyed, ready to go. I feel for the disciples. They didn't stay awake. It was late at night. They're in a dark place. They're ready to fall asleep. And have you ever tried to pray when you're tired? That's extra hard, especially if you're going to close your eyes and have to sit still. But the disciples, they didn't pray. They didn't pray. So we have in this passage, remember a bookend, Jesus says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. At the end, pray that you will not fall into temptation. In the middle, they do not pray. In the middle, we have Jesus who does pray. So let's see the actuality. The disciples who don't pray, notice how the story goes then. It says, while he was still speaking, picking up in verse 47, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Do you notice what happens? When they don't pray, they assume that the right course of action is to fight. Because they have not prayed, they do not discern the will of the Father. 
And Jesus comes and he says, no more of this. No more of this. He says, am I leading a rebellion? He says, the whole point is this. He said, I am not leading a rebellion. I'm not trying to overthrow the government. I'm not coming here with swords and clubs and trying to raise up an army. He says, none of this. And the no more of this is not only to the crowd that's come, but it is to his disciples he speaks. And he says, no more of this. Why? Because they haven't prayed. They fail to discern the will of the Father. Because the will of the Father is for Jesus to go to the cross, not to fight. And they get it wrong. In fact, not only that, the disciples don't pray. And what do we see happens in the, in the next story? Now, we didn't read that far in this passage. But not only do they want to fight, but then after Jesus is arrested, we know that what does Peter do? Peter denies the Lord. And we asked ourselves, if they had prayed, would Peter have been faithful? In fact, it's interesting in this passage that Peter isn't really the only one who's tempted. If you go back to verse 31 in the upper room where they're having the Last Supper, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And we often read like, Simon is the failure. The rest of the disciples may, may run, but Simon Peter is the one who denies the Lord. But notice, they are all going to be tempted, because when Jesus says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, the word you in the Greek, is, in English, that's a general word. It can be singular or plural, but the you in the Greek is specifically plural. He says, Simon, Simon, something specific is going to happen to you, but all of you are going to be tempted. The you there is plural. And so Simon becomes, as he has been the leader of the disciples, he now leads them in denying the Lord. The disciples didn't pray. So the disciples assume fighting is the right course of action. The disciples didn't pray. So the disciples, they run, and Peter denies the Lord. Jesus did pray in the middle and you'll notice, when Jesus prays, the first thing that happens is an angel strengthens him. Verse 33, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. God strengthens his people when they seek him in prayer. Jesus prays, and a mob doesn't intimidate him. Isn't it interesting? You notice when the mob shows up, who takes charge? It's not the mob, is it? You know, when Judas shows up, Judas has got a plan in place. Judas has already made all the arrangements. He's given him the secret signal, the one I come up and kiss. That's the one you want to arrest. And when Judas comes up and he's walking towards the Savior to give him a kiss, Jesus takes charge and he says, Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the swords get drawn, he says, enough of this. When the, when the mob starts coming towards him, he says, hey, am I leading a rebellion? You discover something. Jesus has spent the night in prayer, and because he has, prayer, he has prayed, he has the peace of God and the direction of God when the crowds show up, which is what the disciples lack because they have not prayed. But Jesus is not intimidated by the crowd and finally, we know that if we were to read on in the rest of the story, because Jesus prayed, he embraces the cross. And he goes to the cross of Calvary, 
to become the sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. And so as you see this passage, if you want to write down one thing to understand, it's this. Prayer is often the dividing line between obedience and disobedience. Prayer is often the dividing line between obedience and disobedience. Because Jesus who prays, notice, He knows the will of the Father. When He prays, He surrenders to the will of the Father to obey Him. In fact, it's interesting in His words there, when He prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He surrenders to the will of the Father there. And it's interesting, those words, in the NIV translation I read, if you are willing, the word willing, yet not my will. It sounds the same in the English, the will of the Father, the will of Jesus. But what he really prays is this, two different words in the original Greek. He says, Father, if you are determined, take this cup from me, yet not what I wish, Jesus says, but yours be done. He surrenders himself to the determination, the ordination of God the Father. And then he is strengthened by God to accomplish that task. You know what, sometimes we think of prayer, we think, well, I want to see answers to prayer. What we discover is this, the, your life of prayer often will be the dividing line between whether you choose to obey God because you know his will, you are surrendered to his will, and you are strengthened to do his will, or whether you will disobey God. And those are the daily things that sometimes people never see, they will never know about. No one's going to stand up in front of church and give some great testimony. But it is about the daily life of obedience. You might say, well, Pastor, how can I be that type of prayer person? You know, I think sometimes we're tempted, but it's like Jesus. He's spending the night praying, and we think of Jesus when he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasts. And sometimes as Christians, we get the idea that, man, if we're going to live the successful Christian life, we're going to obey God, we're going to know God's will, we're going to surrender ourselves to God's will, and we're going to be strengthened by God to do His will and to carry it out, then, man, we have got to be super prayer warriors. I remember once uh, in church when I was a kid, uh, there was a Saturday Night, Light, Saturday Night Live skit that had become popular with two guys named Hans and Franz, and we did a Sunday school spoof on it. We're here to pump you up. And sometimes we get the idea of prayer that we have to start off big, but you know what? It's okay to start off small. In fact, sometimes Christians get this idea, man, pastor preached on prayer. I'm going to pray for an hour every day this week. Probably not, because you're probably not in shape to do that. I remember when my wife and I were dating at Bethel College, I got this idea that, I mean, you can look at me. I'm not a big guy. I've never been a muscular guy. But I got this idea, you know what? I have a beautiful girlfriend, and... I want to impress her, so I decided time to head to the gym. Never been to the gym before, really haven't been to the gym much since, but, uh, but you, know, you know what you do, guys, when you are motivated to impress, impress a girl. And so I decided, off to the gym I go. So I went to Bethel's gym uh, and their little weight room that they had there in Goodman Auditorium, and I walked into the weight room. I don't know what the weights are, but I'm like, I can figure them out. And so I, I just determined 
you might as well go for broke when you walk into the gym on the first day of starting lifting weights. So they had this thing, it was kind of like a squat machine, I think it's called a sled, and you could put weights on it, and it goes over your shoulders, and you go up and down. And so I'd just start, I'd, I'd just start with the machine, and I'd make it as heavy as I could get it, and I'd just do it as many times as I could do it. So maybe I'd get 15 times, like, man, that's heavy. And so I'd, I'd lower the weight, or I'd go try a different machine, and, and I would start lifting with that. And I was there for over an hour. In fact, I, you know dumbbells, just the little weights you carry. You know, I start off, now I'm not a strong guy, so I probably start off with like 30-pound 30, 30 dumbbells. And I'm sitting there, I'm doing as many reps as I can, one in each hand. At the end of the time, I'm 30, I'm like, I cannot lift anymore. I'm going down to 25. 25, I got three, all right. I can't do anymore. Down to 20. Get the 20-pound dumbbells, switch them out, take a break, all right. I do, I do 20 a few times. All right, we're going down to 15. And so I work myself all the way down to the two-pound dumbbells to the point where I cannot pick up a two-pound dumbbell anymore. I have been in the weight room so long, and I'm like, like, I think I'm done for the day. She will be impressed. So I I go back to my dorm. Oh, she was impressed. The next day when I walked out, and oh, you could see the effects. My whole body was swollen. My arms were this big around. My wrists were swollen. All the glands in my neck were swollen. And I couldn't bend a limb. I couldn't even get my coat on. And and. And she looked and she goes, what happened? I said, I left weight. She impressed? <laughs> and I'm like, can you help me put my coat on? <laughs> and I'm turning. And you think, it's true. That's the worst part. It's true. And some of us in the Christian life, we start there. And I remember hearing a Christian speaker once. He said, oh, he said, my pastor was so helpful. He said he preached a message on prayer and that we needed to be people devoted to prayer And he said, the temptation for me was to jump and say, man, I'm going to pray for a half an hour. I'm going to pray for an hour. And my pastor, the speaker said, he said, start with five minutes. Just start with five minutes and build yourself up. Start with the little things and develop a life and a habit of prayer. You might say, what are the little things that you can do? Um, some of them, the most obvious, many Christians pray before their meal. If that's not a habit of yours, learn to start pausing and to acknowledging that all that we have, including the meals we eat, have been provided by our Creator God. When you wake up in the morning, starting a morning time, in fact, to start a day, don't wait for the time when you face a huge decision, you're facing a cross, so to speak. What if you start the day saying, God, today, not what I will, but what you will. When you end the day, just thinking back over it and saying, thank you for where God has guided and blessed, and asking God's forgiveness where you have failed to follow his leading. You don't have to start off as a super Christian. But what I know is this, is that in this passage, prayer is the dividing line between obedience 
of Jesus Christ to the will of the Father and the dividing line between the disciples who fail and run. Prayer is the dividing line. So we are called in this passage to be people of prayer. Because prayer lays the foundation for obedience. So as you go to lunch and you enjoy a lunch today, talk about how could you take one step? You don't need to lift 30-pound dumbbells. You can start off with the two-pounders and get used to it. How can you take a step in exercising your prayer life before God? Will you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, as we look at this passage, Lord, we see the contrast, the difference between Jesus and his disciples, and a difference that was made real because of the responses to prayer. So, Father, I pray. I pray in my own life, and I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here. Lord, that you will deepen us in prayer. Not just the amazing prayers when we need a miracle to show up, but, Lord, the prayers of everyday obedience, submitting ourselves to the will of you, our Heavenly Father. So God, teach us to pray. In Jesus' name we ask this. And all God's people said, amen. Will you stand as we sing our closing song?